Welcome to the Denver Snuffer Podcast. This is part two of a multi-part series where Denver continues addressing the question, how do I get the most out of gospel study? Where do I begin? It can be frustrating to read and not really get much out of a text aside from the most obvious and superficial reading. What can I do or what skills or approaches do I need to utilize in order to make my study effective so I can both understand and experience the gospel as well as prepare for Zion? When uh, Moroni, excuse me, when Nephi, Second Nephi chapter 9, verse 14-ish, about how the things that he had seen and heard, he constantly meditated upon that, writing some 40 years after the fact. The revelations that Joseph Smith received, including that one that he received in the sacred grove, was not all to be comprehended in the first pass-through. Things of God are of deep import. Why did God reveal what he revealed when he revealed it? Why did he reveal it in the order in which he revealed it? What was he building upon? Why in the first revelation did he go there? Why in the next did he go to that point? If you think Joseph's mind wasn't caught up on the things that he had seen and heard, just as yours should be about the things that you have seen and heard, then you need to think again because the things of God are of deep import. And time and care and careful and solemn and ponderous thoughts are the only way in which you or anyone can find them out. And that applies especially to you because you control you. You determine how much light and truth you will receive. And it's predicated upon a law that was ordained before the foundation of the world. Any one of you can obey it. God is no respecter of persons and you are authorized to exercise faith in him unto salvation. You are authorized to exercise faith in him until you know him. You are authorized to see his face and know that he is, every one of you, because if you intend to survive his return, you're going to have to be able to bear his presence. Hence the need to now talk about this stuff and hence the agenda that we're on. We introduced it. We talked about faith. We talked about repentance. We're going to talk about covenants next. I know not all of you come to all of these. I don't expect you to. Um, I don't even expect you to get the discs and listen to them, but I'm trying to transcribe them and fill in the um, things that I'm thinking about, even if I don't uh, give you the scriptures. And they're up and they'll be on the um, Internet and available for you to read. Um, I'm introducing things. I'm trying to provoke you to study. I'm trying to provoke you to go look into this stuff. But I can't babysit you and shouldn't. I'll only make you weak and not strong if I attempt to do that. You need to take this as the beginning point and go on and discover for yourself how great things the Lord intends to do. And one of the neglected volumes of Scripture you need to spend some time with is the lectures on faith. They remain Scripture. 
I told you how the Lord vouched for Joseph Smith. The Lord vouches for Joseph Smith again. And if no one else will say it, I'll declare it to you. If you ignore Joseph's words, you ignore it at your peril. And if you allow any man or men, if you allow any committee, any institution or organization to claim that they have the right to alter, neglect, or discard the words of revelation given by God through the prophet Joseph Smith, they will damn you if you listen to them, and they will surely be damned for doing so because no one has the right to do that. God's work is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And those who would like to throw you about by every whim of doctrine are teaching you merely the commandments of men as if they were doctrine, and they aren't. When God speaks through Joseph and we forget him, then we have no right to expect collectively that he's going to move anything forward for us. The first order of repentance is to remember what God gave to us through Joseph. You do that, and then you'll find God's perfectly willing to pick it up and move it forward. You don't do that, and God will simply wait for you to get around to discharge the duty that's devolving upon you. God vouched for Joseph Smith. God spoke through him. And I don't have the right to move one of his words. But I do have the right to listen to him, to follow what came through him, and to lay hold upon the blessings that were promised as a consequence of remembering him. Because to remember the words of Joseph is to remember your Lord. Remember him. And don't let anyone tell you that they hold some authority that allows them to neglect, change, discard, veto, forget, or contradict what God told you through the voice of a prophet. In verse um, 12, it talks about how there's going to be this restoration of knowledge of their fathers in the latter days, also to the knowledge of my covenant, saith the Lord. Um, and then in 15, it says, his name should be called after me. It should be after the name of his father, after me being Joseph of Egypt. So the name should be Joseph. That will also be the name of his father. He should be likened to me. For the thing which the Lord God shall bring forth by his hand, by the power of the Lord, shall bring my people unto salvation. And then he goes on and he tells Lehi, tells his son in verse 23, because of this covenant, that is the one that was done with Joseph of Egypt, he, the son of Lehi, is blessed. For his, the son of Lehi's seed, shall not be destroyed they shall hearken unto the words of the book, and there shall rise up one mighty among them. I talked about that in Boise. And so, 
If Joseph Smith fulfills the prophecy that was delivered to Joseph that is recovered in part in the Book of Mormon in this third chapter of 2 Nephi, then Joseph Smith should give to us the ability to know something about these covenants that were made with the fathers. Well, we do not have to rely upon um, merely what we have in 2 Nephi chapter 3. Nor do we have to have the brass plates, as it turns out. Because Joseph Smith restored the prophecy of Joseph of Egypt, and you can read it right now in the uh, Joseph Smith translation, beginning in Genesis chapter 50 at verse 24. It reads slightly different than Lehi's summation given, and Lehi's choice of what he um, adds in and what he selects out and what Joseph says uh, have some interesting things. It's, it's absolutely worth your time to study out all the differences and to, and to pick apart what it is that Lehi did because it tells you much about Father Lehi, what he chose to include and what he chose to pass over. The work of salvation is not achieved by your ignorance and indifference. And the gospel of Christ is not limited to making you feel better about yourself. Quite frankly, my wife and I marvel all the time at how unprepared and unworthy she and I feel in everything that has gone on. But, I know God. And therefore, because I know God, I am confident that you can know him too. Absolutely confident that you can know him too. And that he will speak to any one of you, just as he spoke to Joseph Smith. And that he will answer any earnest seeker. No one is sent away disappointed. Do you think the Lord, who would not turn away the blind and the halt, the crippled and the leprous, do you think the Lord who, seeing the widow whose only son was being carried away dead and was moved with compassion to restore the life of that young man, so that she, in that circumstance, in that culture, in that environment, she now had future security because she had a son to look out for. Do you think that that Lord doesn't intend to answer the prayers of the earnest seeker? My suspicion is that God has answered and you've turned a deaf ear to much of what you've looked for because you want something other than the answers he's already given in the material that sets in front of you unexamined. My suspicion is that if you would spend time looking into the revelations given us by the prophet Joseph Smith, and studying the history, however perilous that may prove to be to you, that you will conclude 
that God's already had an answer to the inquiry that you've made. And that with a little effort, you can find it. And when you find it, you'll hear the voice of God saying, there it is. Now, was that so hard? (laughs) Why don't you keep going and see what else is in there for you? Because this stuff was given to us at the price of the life of a 38 and a half year old young man and his older brother whose blood was shed in order to restore what we now have in our possession. And we take it lightly and we look away. I could write my own gospel. I could bear my own testimony. I could invent a new narrative about our Lord if it were necessary to do so. But I'll tell you, the only thing that is necessary is to open the scriptures and read them and to tell you the things that we've looked at tonight are true. Like Jacob. In fact, if you go all the way back to Jacob chapter 6, And now behold, my brethren, as I said unto you that I would prophesy, behold, this is my prophecy that the things which this prophet Zenos spake concerning the house of Israel and the which he likened them unto a tame olive tree must surely come to pass. So here's the words of my prophecy. But the things that we have looked at this evening, restored through the prophet Joseph Smith, the seer named Joseph, the son of a father named Joseph, fulfilled the promise of Joseph of Egypt, and they are all true. And I know them to be true. And you can know them to be true too. But the price you have to pay in order to gain that knowledge is to pay some attention to what it was that was restored through the prophet Joseph Smith. Otherwise, they're just something gathering dust on a shelf. Don't read them as if you're trying to vindicate the religion that you think you already understand. Don't read them as if you're trying to defend your current group of um, preferred doctrines. Read them as if you are as ignorant of the will of God as the convert is that you hope to make living somewhere in Florida or New Guinea or Guatemala. Because the truth of the matter is that we have been devolving in our understanding from the day of Joseph Smith until today at an ever-accelerating rate. And what we have left, ain't it called gross darkness? As we get to ceiling power, and we will get there before the day is up, there are some things about that you need to have parsed and you need to understand. But the fact of the matter is that when we talk to priesthood, about priesthood, we throw about lavish claims among ourselves because we have a vocabulary. And as a consequence of possessing that vocabulary, we think then that we have understanding. 
when in fact the scriptures are telling us a whole different story. And that whole different story is what we're pursuing here today. Hopefully when we get to the end of this today, you'll walk away saying, I need to go back and study my scriptures because it sounds like there's a whole lot in there about priesthood that makes distinctions which I had not heretofore appreciated. As you read section 76, remember that the things of God are not to be taken lightly, nor are they given to you merely by study. You must also receive revelation in order to understand revelation. The scriptures are a launching point to take your mind upward. You must commune with God to understand the things of God. Do not be fooled by man's pretensions into sloth. No man or committee or organization will ever save you. Nothing, some financial institution managed by lawyers, bankers, managers, businessmen, and professors, offers will matter in the afterlife. The only things which will matter at that place will be what you secure for yourself from the powers of heaven while you live here. This is a probation. Act like the choices you make are the choices a God in the making would choose. Be responsible for your life's outcome. When the day of judgment comes, you'll not be able to hand a temple recommend to your divine judge and have him respect the mere man's judgment of you. All that document proves objectively is that you paid money to the church. It's a receipt, and you don't even know what your money got used for because you do not even dare to ask the question of your leaders about how the money was spent. For the rest of the temple recommend questions, they're merely subjective in nature and allow the vain, the misled, and the blind to announce their purported worthiness. All of that is a mirage which will pass away when you depart this life. It is not that God loves one more than another. It is that some of you love him and others do not. And by this he knows whether you love him. It's whether your heart is soft and willing to receive, or you deliberately choose to be blinded by the false traditions that you've studied through and hold fast to because you have not faith. Religion is intended to be between you and God, deeply personal, individually redemptive, Christ is as accessible to you as he was to Moses on the mount. And what was Moses' ambition? It was to bring everyone up on the mount to see God too. And what did the children of Israel say? Now you go talk to them. We don't want to. And why don't we want to? Because 
I can study about God and I can develop a, um, a, a set of authorities and I can uh, expound upon the history of the church and I can parse through the vocabulary of the restoration and I can prove, I can prove what God is going to do next and that what's going on right now today in Ephraim, Utah isn't it. And in the pride of your heart and in the blindness of your mind and in the hardness of your soul, you will not receive God saying, ignore the man with the microphone and come to me. You will not say, perhaps the words of scripture mean something different and more intensely personal than I have ever taken them to mean before. I'm not the best messenger. I wish I had the voice of an archangel. I wish I could do something to soften the heart. Christ is in fact holy, and I'm deeply aware of the fact that I am not. I can't redeem any of you, but he can. I can testify of him, but when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, you can feel faith and you can feel that, that something important is being communicated by God to you. But if you read in the Doctrine and Covenants, look at the process. The wicked one comes and he takes away the light from you and he does this through your disobedience. And what is your disobedience? That wicked one cometh and take away light and truth through disobedience from the children of men and because of the tradition of their fathers, my voice is gonna fall silent in your ears in a few moments and you're gonna leave here and you're gonna go on and there are gonna be a thousand voices and traditions that intervene and come tomorrow, you're going to attend meetings in which you're gonna hear a lot of things expounded that just aren't true and the traditions will take over and your families are gonna impose upon you the traditions that they have handed down and you're going to sing about blessed noble pioneer and the cacophony of voices will rise and the critics will chirp up and the wicked one will come and take away light and truth. And I cannot be with you always. And if I were, it would only cripple you. And I'm not here to cripple you. I hate the fact that these are 10 talks given by me. I wish there were 10 talks given by 10 different people. That way you wouldn't say, well, he's, you know, something. I'm nothing. I'm keenly aware of my own limitations, but I am keenly aware of our Lord. When I have had discussions with him, they have invariably been parsing through the scriptures, explaining things, when I have inquired and gotten answers, it has been because of things that are in the scriptures that I do not understand. I bear witness of Christ. I have seen him. I know he lives. I know he is coming in judgment. 
And I know that before his coming, he has wanted some things to be declared. I have been as faithful as I can be in declaring the things that I've been asked to declare. I sense keenly my own inadequacy. I beg you to overlook all that. Look at the scriptures. Look at the words of Christ. Look at the explanations we got from Joseph. Look at the things that are true and go to him in faith believing. When I started out, I gave you a description of him. I want to repeat that. The Lord is affable, but he is not gregarious. He is approachable. He is not aloof. He is patient and he is willing to guide and he's willing to teach. He is intelligent, but he is not overbearing. He is humble and approachable in his demeanor, even though his power is absolutely undeniable. Therefore, he is both a lamb and a lion. And if you come to him in the day that he offers redemption, you will be coming to the lamb. But if you wait for his coming in judgment, you are waiting on the lion and you will not like what it is that you will see. I asked you to remember he is quick to forgive sin. He allows all to come to him. He is no respecter of persons. I said that when I began. I'm saying it again as we end today. He is real. He lives. His work of redemption continues right now just as it continued throughout his mortal life, just as it continued as he hung on the cross, just as it continued in his resurrection in Palestine and as he came to visit with the Nephites. He ministered to other sheep. And for the life of me, I can't understand why the Nephites didn't ask him about those other sheep. It's one of the things about which mankind has had absolutely no curiosity for some reason. He's ministered to other sheep. He's called other people. And there are, in fact, holy men whom ye know not of that still remain. If there was anything more I could do or say that I thought would convince or persuade you to believe in him, I would do it or I would say it. But despite it all, I realize some of you are going to walk out of here thinking that I'm just another one of these Latter-day blowhards, and that's all good and well. Please, however, give heed to the scriptures I've read, the words of Joseph I've quoted, and the fact that I do have a witness that he, he's approachable and that he's every bit as much alive today as he was when he walked on the road to Emmaus. And he's every bit as much willing to come and redeem you from the fall as he is willing to redeem anyone. His work and his glory is culminated in you. His success is redeeming you if you think that, well, he's aloof, he's distant, 
and this is an impossibly high thing to achieve, the fact of the matter is, it is a greater achievement on his end to redeem you than it is at your end to be redeemed. There's more anxiety, there's more desire, there's more rejoicing in heaven when he redeems someone from the fall than there is here. Because of the many great works which the Lord God showed unto him, this man knew he was God. And then because of the knowledge of this man, he could not be kept from beholding within the veil. And he saw the finger of Jesus, which when he saw, he fell with fear, for he knew that it was the finger of the Lord. And he had faith no longer, for he knew nothing doubting. Wherefore, having this perfect knowledge of God, he could not be kept from within the veil. Therefore, he saw Jesus and he did minister unto him. God is known by his many works. Faith gives way to knowledge. He ministers to him. Notice that verse 18, ministered unto him even as he ministered unto the Nephites. Verse um, 20, he did minister unto him. Christ has a ministry. His ministry is not yet complete. His ministry includes coming and bearing testimony. And that ministry continues as we looked at. Turn to chapter four, verse seven. And in that day that they shall exercise faith in me, saith the Lord, even as the brother of Jared did, that they may become sanctified in me, then will I manifest unto them the things which the brother of Jared saw, even to the unfolding unto them all my revelations, saith Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth and all things that in them are. This is the ministry of the Lord. This is the comfort that he would have that he promises to bring to us. This text that we're looking at in Ether chapter three is probably the best single text in existence to study about gaining the knowledge of God and the process by which it is gained but most importantly, it exposes the attitude that is possessed by the person who comes back to be redeemed. It tells you, not directly, it tells you indirectly by telling you what he did. Go thou and do likewise. Everything that you have been put through and every challenge that you have been given and every weakness that you possess have been given to you in a studied way to bring you hopefully to your knees, to bring you hopefully to feel the chastening hand of God so that you in your day, in your circumstance can look upon that as a gift because it surely is. I give unto men weakness that they may come unto me. And if they'll humble themselves and come unto me, I'll make weak things strong. 
That's also, excuse me. Did I just knock it? Okay. That's also in the book of Ether, and that's in an aside in which Moroni is complaining that the, the Gentiles aren't going to believe this book. The Gentiles aren't going to believe this record. They're going to say, this, this stinks. They're, they're, Ether chapter 12, verse 26. When I had said this, the Lord God spake unto, say, unto me, saying, fools mock, but they shall mourn. My grace is sufficient for the meek that they shall take no advantage of your weakness. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. That's an unavoidability. That's an inevitability. You stand in the presence of a just and holy being, you're going to realize your weaknesses. You're going to recognize what you lack. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble, and my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. How do weak things become strong? Not by fighting the battle that you're going to lose. It's by appreciating, as the brother of Jared did, the fact that none of us can come into the presence of God without feeling keenly this scripture. But it is given unto me. Fools mock, they shall mourn. I, this is Christ speaking, I give unto men weakness for one purpose. I give unto them weakness that they may be strong. The anvil that you're dragging around, that anvil was given to you. Don't curse it. Pray for God to come and lift it. You're never going to be able to get far carrying it anyway. You may not even be able to lift it. But in the economy of God, that is a gift. It's a gift. Not for you to act upon and surrender to but for you to fight against in humility and meekness and to say, I'm not winning. I haven't won. It goes on and on, and yet still, I fight against it. When will you finally come to him and cry out? When in the bitter anguish of your soul, like Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail, how long must I endure this? How long do I have to suffer from the abuse of the guards? How long do I have to sit inside a gated room in a dungeon to hear stories about the rape of the people who followed me and the murder of the people that believed what I was teaching? How long did Joseph's heart break in Liberty Jail? He emerged from that ordeal a fundamentally different man than the man who went in. There are people who say, oh, yeah, Nunavu, we got to carry away with all kinds of things. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. We'll talk more about this whole idea of marriage, and we'll touch upon the notion of plurality of wives. We'll brush up against that tomorrow. Look, these scriptures 
these invitations, these prophecies, and this message that began in Boise and will conclude in Phoenix, this message is inviting you to do what was originally prophesied as this dispensation began that we looked at at the beginning in Boise, Idaho. The game's afoot. The challenge is underway. The opportunity is here. There's um, some eagerness that uh, Father Hiram had to get busy before the Book of Mormon was even done, preaching repentance because he believed it. And uh, the Lord held, held Hiram back. If you go to Doctrine and Covenants section 11, beginning at first thing, 13, there's a revelation given to Hiram that says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I'll impart unto you of my spirit, which shall enlighten your mind, which shall fill your soul with joy. And then shall ye know, or by this ye shall know, all things whatsoever ye desire of me, which are pertaining unto things of righteousness and faith believing in me that ye shall receive. But I command you that you need not suppose that you're called to preach until you are called. Wait a little longer until you shall have my word, my rock, my church, and my gospel, that you may know of a surety my doctrine. See, Hiram was being told, it's good to be eager, but don't go out and try to preach something because you're not yet qualified. You don't have enough knowledge in order to do so. Likewise, Adam and Eve, not because the Lord held back and told them, don't do it, don't do it, but because the circumstances of their lives did not prepare them to do it until there were generations already alive on the earth. Then they were given the gifts that were necessary in order to begin their preaching. Hiram was told in verse 21, Seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word. And then shall your tongue be loosed. Then if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word, yea, the power of God into the convincing of men. But now hold your peace. Study my word, which hath gone forth among the children of men. And also study my word, which shall come forth among the children of men, or that which is now translating... Yea, until you have obtained all that which I granted to the children of men in this generation, and then shall all things be added thereto. Hiram Smith, who would eventually become co-president with Joseph. Hiram Smith, to whom the Lord would command that he be ordained not only to priesthood, but to become the one possessing the sealing power over the church. Hiram Smith, who would be the successor to Joseph, though he was killed before Joseph. Hiram Smith, who was the prophet of the church, and Joseph rebuked the church because they weren't giving heed to Hiram's words. Hiram Smith, whose letter to the church ought to be in the Doctrine and Covenants because he was a president and he issued a general epistle admonishing people. Hiram Smith, whose name is omitted from the list of church presidents, even though it should be there. Hiram Smith is told by the Lord don't go out and start preaching yet. You need to learn something first. You need to be qualified first. In the revelation to Hiram given in 1829, and in the lives of Adam and Eve, God is in no great hurry to get people running around uh, preaching before they're qualified. There's this comment that Joseph Smith made. He said, I am learned and know more than all the world put together. The Holy Ghost does anyhow, and he is within me and comprehends more than all the world, and I will associate myself with him. That's in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 350. This is what qualified Adam and Eve to go declare repentance to 
their children. This is what qualified them to know the truth of all things and have the wisdom with which to impart it so that they could persuade their children to believe in Christ. This is the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, to be competent in teaching your children, must first have the Holy Ghost as your guide. Then, once you have that, you ought to have command of the scriptures just as Hiram was told to learn what's in them. Then you're qualified to go and to teach um, your children. And you have an obligation to do that. Children are the means to preserve Zion. Without the conversion of children, um, Zion has no chance of surviving. I read this before, and it, it belongs again right here. Um, this is Joseph Smith writing from confinement in uh, Liberty Jail. This is after Joseph has been confined in the Liberty Jail and had months of opportunity to reflect upon what it was that had gone on among the saints while he was still free and living among them. The things of God are of deep import and time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thoughts can only find them out. Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul unto salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss and the broad expanse of eternity. Thou must commune with God. How much more dignified and noble are the thoughts of God than the vain imaginations of the human heart? None but fools will trifle with the souls of men. How vain and trifling have been our spirits, our conferences, our councils, our meetings, our private as well as public conversations, too low, too mean, too vulgar, too condescending for the dignified characters of the called and chosen of God. Don't waste your time when you're with one another. Learn, study, testify, search the scriptures, worship God. If you are still LDS, use whatever good you find there. This is what we should lay hold upon. Truth, light, understanding, edifying, growing in knowledge of the principles of truth. You should not waste another three-hour block of time fiddling around with nonsense because you don't have permission from God to do that. Preach the principles. And if you don't think you know enough to do anything else, Get together and read the scriptures out loud. In the early church, when they, in this dispensation, when they got together, one of the things that they regularly did was they got together and everyone prayed in turn. Everyone prayed. And the meeting would last until all had prayed. I called it a prayer meeting, oddly enough. One of the early brethren didn't like that. 
he, he, he didn't feel like he could pray vocally around other people. And there's a section of the Doctrine and Covenants admonishing him in a revelation that he needs to pray. If you don't have any wisdom to impart to one another, get together and pray. Get together and read the scriptures. But don't get together and read out loud out of any recent publication from Deseret Book. If we are going to begin again, it must be in conformity with the doctrine of Christ. It must be taught by the spirit of truth and it must follow the pattern that was given in Kirtland um, for us to follow. God could, does, and will work through anyone who awakens and then pays attention. There's an army of witnesses and awakened individuals that are being assembled by God. It's required to know him, and I know him. I've been taught and understand his gospel. The first task is to assure people that he lives and his gospel exists as an authentic method for saving souls. The second task is to remember the restoration Joseph gave his life to begin. We're ungrateful when we fail to remember and practice it. At the moment, there is almost no clear understanding of that gospel. I'm working to set that out in a comprehensive way. It's never been completed. There's a great deal prophesied to roll out as part of the restoration that is not even commenced. Do we have Zion? What about the lost teachings of the brass plates? Do we have the rest of the Book of Mormon? Do we have the testimony of John? Do we have restored knowledge of the Jaredites? The list could be very long. But the fact that there is a list tells us that the restoration must resume at some point in order to be completed. We don't have it on the table, but we've forgotten what we once had. So the first job is to show that we're grateful enough to remember and to remember it in a fulsome, comprehensive way before God is going to say, now I will permit it to move forward. We haven't gotten to the point of remembering yet, which is why we ought to be studying a lot more diligently the material we got in the restoration. We ignore it at our peril. Mormonism is true, but it is possible for people to believe in Mormonism and have a whole bundle of ideas in their head that I don't share with them. But the difference between the views that I have of Mormonism and the views that that person has of Mormonism can largely be accounted for based upon how much study, effort, review, thoughtfulness has gone into where they are and where I am. The effort to uncover the story of the restoration is still left undone. It's still incomplete. I have been working as diligently as I can in every spare minute that I have, and I have to tell you, there is still a monumental pile of material yet to be reviewed before I get to the end of what's out there. And, you know, I... I work full-time for a living. I don't have the luxury of doing this as, uh, 
as a profession. I do it as a hobby. And these things are expensive to acquire and require months to review and get through and find. But let me tell you, the search is worth it. No matter how shallow the pool is that you've drunk out of in trying to figure out what the history of Mormonism is, let me assure you that if you uncover a question, there is an answer to your question. There is something out there that will give you the truth of the matter. I get so tired of reading these silly and named anti-Mormon rants like that, that Grant Palmer book. That, uh, an insider's view of Mormon origins is silly. It's, it's trite. That letter to the CES uh, uh, thing that has caused a crisis, I read it and I laugh out loud at how superficially silly it is. But in my view, there is a great work left to be done. And I have to stay focused on some things that are important, some things that still never got completed in Joseph's day that God promised would be completed at some point. We may yet see the restoration take on a power and a glory that it hardly attained to at the beginning. The easiest way to hijack that is to spend all of your time dealing with refuting arguments about our history. I have given up any ambition of either refuting critics or refuting my own critics. The only thing I'm interested in doing is trying to at last state truthfully based upon the work that God had Joseph do, what it was that God accomplished through him. Historians can go back and take everything I've written and they can fill in all the gaps and they can defend everything I've written. I'm going to keep pressing on and I'm going to keep plowing new ground in order to try and construct what it was the restoration was intended to accomplish. I would encourage every one of you to take seriously the restoration of the gospel. I would encourage every one of you to realize that Joseph Smith was exactly what he said he was and probably a whole lot more than he was ever willing to disclose. Well, I haven't said for many, many, many years that the church is true, but I have said and I say again, the gospel's true. The restoration is true. Joseph was what he claimed to be and probably a lot more. And if you stumble into questions in LDS church history that raise some doubts in your mind about the restoration itself, trust me, <laughs> if you'll just study the matter out and take the time to look into it, you're going to find an answer. And very often, those answers are quite glorious. Glorious beyond anything that you could imagine. If anything, Joseph Smith understated what he did. That list I read you, which is found in Doctrine and Covenants section 128, 
doesn't tell you what diverse angels from Adam or Michael down to the present who came and declared their keys, their rights, their honors, doesn't tell you what was involved there. Joseph Smith left out more than he put on the table. Joseph's original Mormonism was inclusive, not exclusive. All truth belonged to Mormonism, but it never pretended to have it all. Mormonism was the search for truth. It was originally the search to discover truth without fear of finding something new. To Joseph, Mormonism did not possess all truth. His religion was not based on conceit, but on humility. The willingness to continue to search, pray, study, and hope for newly revealed additions. It was understood there was a great deal more yet to be discovered. The claim that Mormonism was the only true and living church presumed the willingness to hear God's voice and receive new truth. It was not because it already had all truth. It was living during Joseph's life because it continued to grow and expand. Living organisms grow. Dead ones decay. The foregoing are excerpts taken from Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talks 3, 4, 5, 7, 8, 9, and 10, given during 2013 and 2014. A Q&A session entitled A Visit with Denver Snuffer, held on May 13, 2015. A fireside talk on Mormon history, given in Bountiful, Utah, on November 22, 2015. And the presentation of Denver's paper entitled Was There an Original? given at the Sunstone Symposium on July 29, 2016. In addition, Denver has written extensively about this topic. If you are interested in learning more, please review the following blog posts, among others. Gospel Study, posted November 17, 2011. Christians Should Study Mormonism, posted January 12, 2017. How I Study the Scriptures, posted March 18, 2010. 3 Nephi eleven thirty six posted September 29, 2010. Scriptures, Not Traditions, posted February 24, 2014. If you have questions or ideas for topics that you would like to have covered in this podcast, please submit them for consideration to questions at denversnufferpodcast.com. You can request baptism by visiting bornofwater.org. A complete collection of Denver's talks, lectures, and papers are available to download free of charge at restorationarchives.com. This podcast is a volunteer effort produced under the direction of Denver Snuffer. We hope you'll share it with everyone interested in learning more about Christ, the coming Zion, and the restoration of authentic Christianity now underway in our time.